Harvard Divinity School. Islamic Self-Help, Gendered Anxieties, and Racial Capitalism in Singapore, April 12, 2022. Good afternoon. Uh, I'm Ann Browdy, the Director of the Women's Studies in Religion Program here at Harvard Divinity School, and I'm very happy to welcome you to this afternoon's lecture or whatever relationship to the meridian it is in your time zone um, uh, by Nurhazatul Jamil. Um, we're, we're delighted to have her. This will be the last of our lecture series for this year, which has been all online. And we hope it will be the last of our lecture series ever that is all online. We hope that we will be um, hybrid in the future in order to be able to be both in person and to keep this wonderful global audience that we're so pleased to have have with us today. Um, Zot is joining Harvard Divinity School as a visiting professor this year from the Pratt Institute in New York, where she is the assistant professor in Global South Studies and co-director of the Global South Studies program, as well as co-coordinator of the Social Media Lab. And we will get to benefit from all of those areas of expertise and creativity. She has really been um, a pioneer in understanding social media in relation to gender and the study of religion. Uh, and you will see that throughout her, her presentation today. Um, she did her doctorate in anthropology at Northwestern University after doing uh, master's and bachelor degrees in social sciences at the University of Singapore. Her, the work she'll be presenting today will be based in part on her doctoral dissertation in anthropology at Northwestern, um, which brought together this, these interests in social media, uh, gender, and um, uh, the very, um, affective ways that religion is expressed and um, uh, understood and experienced, particularly among uh, women in the global cultures of Islam. Um, I'm not going to tell you too much about her many publications, but I do want to mention that uh, we just learned last week of a major award that she has received as part of a group um, from the American Council of Learned Societies in their program in religion, journalism, and international affairs. She and uh, four of her colleagues in the study of women and Islam have received a grant for decolonizing the representations of Muslim women in the media, training next generation journalists. And I think you will um, hear in her presentation that she is exactly the right person for that job, that she really understands how these things interact and um, will help us really improve the presentation of Muslim women in a, a variety of venues. So um, Zah, we're excited to hear from you today about Islamic self-help, gendered anxieties, and racial capital in Singapore. And I hope that the spa music that we had with the entry slide put you all in the right mood for a um, 
a relaxed connection with a really interesting presenter. Zot. Thank you, Anne, for those very generous words. Um, can everyone hear me? Hi, everyone. I know almost 98% of you, so I'm really excited to see you all here. And for those of you that I've not had the privilege of meeting in person, I look forward to getting to know you either through the Q&A or you're free to email me if you want to talk about my research. Um, and said a lot of amazing things. I'm going to try to live up to them. Um, I'm going to try my best. So I'm going to start by sharing my screen. So as Anne mentioned, my talk closes the lecture series for the whole year. And we're also almost at the end of her fellowship term. And this time and space that I've had to focus on my book has been really transformative in many, many ways. For the first time, I've actually experienced the joy and intimacy of encountering writing as a deeply meditative practice and to grapple with the idea as Tony Kate Bambera suggests that words conjure and thus to not be careless about what we utter, write and sing. Thinking deeply on the work that words do inspired my theorizing on Islamic self-help in my book manuscript, which I have been able to fully revise thanks to this fellowship. So today I'll be sharing some of the overarching frames I discuss in my book. And some of it is going to be, you know, really experimental. So I, I, I invite you to bear with me. And a lot of it is tied to healing and ventral vagal regulation. This is especially pertinent given the context of today's shooting in the Brooklyn subway. I don't know if you've heard of this. We live in a really wounded time. How do we respond to such violence with abolitionist models of self and communal care that transcend carceral logics because these logics have failed us repeatedly? I urge you to think through this question with me. But as sociologist Troy Dester loves to remind us, scratch a theory, you find a biography. So I'd like to begin by thanking the people who have been critical to my time here at Harvard, my colleagues at Women's Studies and Religion, Anne, uh, Tracy, Rahina, and everyone else. Over the past eight months, we have read and workshopped each other's chapters. And I have learned so much, not only about uh, your work, but also your lives. And, and I'm grateful for this opportunity. I'm also in gratitude to my comrades at Harvard's anthropology department, Joy Garza, Jared Drake, and Amulia Mandava for providing an intellectual, ethical, and playful community and a sense of home while I'm away from Brooklyn. And last but not least, thank you to my students in my Muslim TikTok seminar for braving the difficult questions we've entangled with every week on legibility, desire-oriented research, and hope for an otherwise imaginary. I'm gonna miss this class and all of you so much. You are all now a part of my biography and this in turn scaffolds my theorizing. As some of you might know, I'm trained as an anthropologist of social media, gender and religion. So I'd like to begin by reading an excerpt from chapter five of my book, detailing a pedagogical moment in an Islamic self-help class. And from there, weave in the book's research questions and its conceptual frames. The following is from a section titled, Writing a Love Letter to Oneself. The premium place on loving oneself as a corollary of the cultivation of faith is evident when considering that many Muslim women I attended classes with confessed 
that one of their most memorable learning moments centered not on a particular Quranic verse or hadith, but on a letter writing activity. One night, the teacher, Ustaz Ali, decided to break the monotony of his lectures by asking us to write down the things that we loved most and would like to forgive about ourselves. As he handed out mini journals with the logo of his state registered business, he reminded us to take the activity seriously, to get in touch with our feelings and to be honest with ourselves. Attempting to induce the right effect, he projected relaxing instrumentals from his Apple laptop. Um, and you actually heard the kind of music that Tracy played as, as you were all streaming in. 10 minutes into the assignment, I began noticing muffled sniffles. Many women had become so emotionally invested in the activity that they were moved to tears. Ustaz Ali's attempt at creating a conducive environment to elicit the desired response from the students pointed a connection between sonic landscapes and the production of specialized effects. Ethnomusicologist Stephen Feld explores the ways that acoustic soundscapes generate shared experiential knowledge by inciting emotions. Sound not only evokes individualized responses, it also has the potential to construct collective public sentiment with others embedded within the similar experience, prompting variations of social practice. Despite my initial skepticism, I was interpolated into the classroom collective when I became highly conscious of the affective intensities circulating within the room as I worked on my own list. Although not immediately moved to tears myself, the intimacy of the exercise compelled me to engage in intense self-reflection, inspired by the women around me who were deeply invested in the exercise. Although Stas had explicitly instructed us to refrain from interacting with one another as we completed the activity, a few women seated at the back started giggling and rolling their eyes seemingly mocking the sentimentality of the exercise and prompting Ustaz Ali to sternly remind them to, quote, take the activity seriously, end quote. This transient moment of slippage challenges the presumption that pedagogical inculcation or learning is always linear, providing us with a sense of the possibilities where alternative interpretations that disrupt normative understandings of piety and personal transformation could emerge. This moment further challenges us to consider the alternative modalities of becoming that could have been possible had the teachers or students harnessed the disruptions. It further reveals the contentions tied to self-love and forgiveness through this identification. Could loving oneself emphatically through disidentifying with the parts that resemble alterity comprise a form of embodied self-packaging? At what point does negation constitute disempowerment? However, with the exception of these few students, my interlocutors constantly referred to this particular pedagogical moment as crucial to their sense of self-awareness and transformation. Many informed me that they could not stop themselves from tearing, as it was the first time that they had considered the importance of practicing compassion toward themselves in evaluating their romantic and professional failures. I began this talk with this excerpt from my book as it gestures to the questions that scaffold the text on minoritized Muslims cultivation of piety through Islamic classes 
that promoted ethnic and class disidentifications as part of their aspirational becoming and the contention of belonging to a nation state circulating racializing discourses. Offered by Singaporean graduates of Egypt's Al-Azhar University, the classes inspired young, outwardly mobile, minoritized subjects to foreground Islam in their daily lives by recasting it through the frame of self-help. With cashy titles such as The Seven Habits of Effective Muslims, Manners Makeover Workshops for Wife, and Finding Your Ideal Muslim Partner, the teachers referenced the Quran, the Hadith, and American self-help and popular psychology discourses, marketing their costly lessons as opportunities for young Muslim graduates of Singapore secular universities to apply new understandings of their faith to everyday spheres. Here's an example of a poster for one such seminar offered by a provider who no longer offers such classes, and I'm happy to discuss the fluidity in the Q&A. The particular session I highlight in the opening excerpt was similar in genre and form to the other classes that proliferated in Singapore from 2007 onward. Like their counterparts in Indonesia, Egypt, and Malaysia, the teachers navigated social media platforms such as Facebook and Instagram to proselytize and market their lessons. And again, I'm happy to address questions on social media metho uh, methodology and ethnography during the Q&A. Although the number of Muslim life coaches and religious teachers have since shifted, there were four prominent individuals in their mid-20s to the early 30s offering this Islamic self-help classes when I first began preliminary research in 2013. Like Ustaz Ali, they formally registered their educational ventures as state-licensed businesses and employed other Singaporean Al-Azhar graduates as fellow instructors. Unlike the nonprofits, religious initiatives and low-cost informal classes at mosques or households, the lessons were held at convention centers and industrial office spaces at the cost of 40 to 200 US dollars per module. The teachers made sure to distinguish their pedagogical incentives from conventional mosque preachers by modifying the gendered spatiality of the mosque, utilizing PowerPoint slides, using uh, videos and uh, sound from Hollywood and, and elsewhere, and relying on the English language as the primary mode of instruction to apply to an upwardly mobile demography. In so doing, they were keen to demonstrate that they had the authoritative ability to navigate diverse specialities, ranging from mosques to other Islamic learning spaces, despite their youth and eclectic pedagogy. That my mother, who was in her early 60s, felt out of place when I dragged her to one of the seminars, gestures to the incipient divisions within the field of Islamic knowledge production, where my younger self-styled self-help teachers jostled for authority with older, more established monolingual preachers. While the classes attracted some male participants, the vast majority of students were women who were college students and professional executives desiring to fashion ideal Muslim selves while pursuing their careers. Women attended these classes dressed in the latest modest fashions, armed with technological gadgets such as smartphones and iPads to virtually document their participation on social media. Despite the women's dominant presence, only one of the teachers, Ustaza Fatima, back then, was a woman running her own education business with an administrative support team comprising other young women. 
When I began this research, I was most curious about the appeal of these lessons to Muslim women. Why did hundreds of women feel so compelled to spend so much money to attend multiple seminars and classes requiring them to engage in self-transformation in order to cultivate some form of idealized piety? Several rounds of fieldwork later, I began to realize that Muslim women grappled extensively with socioeconomic precarity. They were typically the first in their families to graduate from or to attend college. Newly experiencing upward mobility, they felt intense pressures to care for their households while trying to carve a life for themselves through career and marriage, amidst navigating their commitment to Islam and their consumerist desires. In these classes, the emphasis on women's role in safeguarding the community's well-being points to the ways that self-help was deeply gendered. Yet, a paradox remains in which women possess the agency to foster self-empowerment while relying for the most part on masculinist interpretations of religious authority. In turn, this led me to investigate how women's commitment to knowledge production and self-empowerment could both fracture and consolidate male religious authority. Attending to this conundrum is key toward understanding who has the right to speak on behalf of Islam to debate it to transform it and to contest it. Consequently, it is necessary to apprehend how self-help discourses have contributed to the emergence of Muslim leaders with the ability to appeal to youth disenchanted with conservative approaches to Islam. Thus, while I initiated this project aiming to uncover the appeal of self-help, it led me to broader questions of affect, romance, consumption practices, and gendered authority. Despite the teacher's explicit refusal to be political in their classes, engagement with my interlocutors in these classes and beyond revealed that these experimental educational ventures did not merely symbolize new ways of teaching and learning Islam. Beyond affective pedagogies like letter writing activities, the teachers and students were concerned about the type of Malay Muslim identity they wanted to cultivate. In response to the state's discourses on the ethnic Malay community as lacking in progressive ethos, burdened with debilitating healthcare needs, drug addiction, and underemployment, the teachers attempted to promote Islamic self-help to uplift minoritized subjects through orienting transformative ethics inward instead of working towards structural change. Here, Islamic self-help rhetoric implicitly affirmed dominant state discourses of Malays as lacking in transformative ethos, values that Muslims must disidentify from in order to approximate success. Drawing from Black, Indigenous, and Ethnic Studies scholarships on racial capitalism's affects and disidentification, my book extends current anthropological theorizing on pious cultivation, arguing instead that even quietist ethical projects claiming to be apolitical alter modes of sociality in critical ways. As the state trafficked in neoliberal exceptionalism, Muslims' agentive appropriation of Islamic mindfulness disenfranchised working class Malays prompting my analyses of the recalibration of hope as a strategy that simultaneously divested from and extended the state's production of legibility. Thus, my interlocutors' negotiations of aspirational Muslim becoming have attendance implications for understanding how state power, racial capitalism, and governmentality resonate within everyday processes. 
They also reveal the bifurcations and solidarities between working class and upwardly mobile subjects within Muslim communities, typically discursively depicted as homogenous. To that end, my book is as much an analysis of the power of religious self-help as it is a critique of the conditions of exceptionalism circumscribing minoritized subjectivities within neoliberal nation states. One of the provocations my book uh, poses contends with the triadic relation among state disciplining, self-empowerment, and disidentification. Within a frame where the state racializes malayness as a form of otherness always in need of reconstitution, my interlocutor's emphasis on personal transformation necessitated attending to the ways that the realities of dispossession enhance the appeal of Islamic self-help discourses. Here I'm about to tell you a story of, on, or about Singapore that is very different from the narrative presented by films like Crazy Rich Asians. It is important to understand that Muslims comprise approximately 15% of the overall Singaporean population, with the Malays forming a dominant majority at 99.6% of Muslims. The state automatically indexes Malays as Muslims at birth a curious disciplinary mechanism given its anxieties regarding the Malay status as minorities in a Chinese majority nation within the Malay Muslim archipelago bordered by developing Southeast Asia and East Asian powerhouses. While the British colonization from 1819 to 1959 formalized ethno-social divisions and racial classifications, the post-independent government led by the People's Action Party, henceforth the PAP, sought to secure its political dominance by ensuring economic growth while disciplining race and religion and managing political dissent. Race, class, and religion function as haunting specters in post-independent Singapore, with the PAP government evoking the racial and religious riots of the 1960s to emphasize the need for socially engineered multiracialism and political stability. The state's approach to managing multiculturalism extends to its disciplining of the boundaries of permissibility tied to minoritized subject formation. State apparatuses celebrate elite Malays' successes in advancing their social status, while constantly reminding the other Malays to work harder to improve the community's overall social positioning. The elites who have acquired upward mobility typically hold executive positions on the committee boards of Malay Muslim organizations and mosques, where they recirculate discourses calling upon the, uh, the community to self-transform through relying on interpretations of moderate Islam as moral and cultural resource. In so doing, moderate Islam mediates the consequences of Malayness as a potential source of cultural deficiency. One of these organizations includes the self-help groups initiated by the state in 1980s to avoid the pitfalls of socialist welfareism. Assuming the form of race-specific civic organizations supposedly best under, uh, positioned to understand the prevalent issues within each ethnic community, these groups have facilitated the state's framing of drug addiction, poverty, and low educational status as Malay problems that the community should resolve through neoliberal self-transformation. Thus, in my fieldwork, both the teachers and the students were eager to rely on the values provided by Islamic self-help so as to not be like what they often refer to as the typical Malay. 
Within this context of racial and religious disciplining, individuals who identify as both Malay and Muslim are subject to greater scrutiny if they fail to embody idealized attributes. Like other minoritized subjectivities globally, Islam and Malayness become indexical of problematic resources that require disidentification or disciplining into respectability. Yet as my book demonstrates, self-transformation is deeply processual and tied to shifting relationships of power. In this regard, theorizing on racial capitalism has been constructive in facilitating my analyses of the implications of Islamic self-help classes on minoritized subject making. Extending Cedric Robinson's foundational scholarship, Jody Malamud points to the ways that racism enshrines the inequalities necessary for capitalist modes of extraction centered on profit while capital accumulates by structuring and reproducing relations of inequality among different races, perpetuating mythologies of human value tied to innate or potential capability. The technologies that scaffold the state finance racial violence nexus structure racial capitalism. Here it is important to understand that racial capitalism does not merely account for explicit acts of violence and dispossession, such as transatlantic slavery, indigenous genocide, and police brutality. But they also inspire benevolent logics such as liberal multiculturalism. The latter foregrounds identitarianism by celebrate, celebrating diversity through representation while obscuring shifting differentials of power. Liberal multicultural systems promote collectivity only as it fulfills extractivist capitalist resource conversion and at the expense oftentimes of equitable redistribution of resources. The latter is particularly relevant to the post-colonial Singapore context whereby self-help ideologies circulate amidst neoliberal racial capitalism, complicating what it means to embody Malay and Muslim identities. Yet my book demonstrates that even initiatives that seemingly appear to collude with the state's neoliberal agenda could inspire unanticipated consequences. My time at Pratt Institute working with students, faculty, artists, and designers, and teaching a, a course on decolonizing methods over the past three years um, have really shaped the theoretical scaffolding of my book project. These engagements have affirmed my understanding that a decolonial approach to understanding piety and subject formation would require for both the structures perpetuating dispossession and a desire-based framework as proposed by IFTAC and Wayne K. Yang. A desire-based framework would depart from the fetishization of minoritized subjects' pain toward an emphasis on emergent liberatory possibilities. Within the context of my book, it would compel us to wonder, to ponder, what do Muslim women's attempts at managing the self tell us about their hopeful imaginaries? Could we read their practices of self-help as attempts at restoring a sense of bodily safety amidst everyday precarity? And if so, what submerged perspectives could possibly emerge within the layered terrain of the potential? If we were to seriously contend with the possibility that Malay Muslims' desires to disidentify from their race and class could reveal profound insights on past extractivism and future imaginaries, the need to complicate self-help becomes critical. 
Instead of taking self-transformation for granted, my book is concerned with the pedagogical discourses that reconceptualize how we conceive of Islamic knowledge production and discursive traditions. Indeed, the teacher's emphasis on the students transforming their mental and emotional selves in response to daily adversity points to the neoliberal values undergirding these classes. Thus, when I reference neoliberalism, I'm not just pointing to the political economic shifts and policies, I'm also referring to the ethics of, trans of transformation within spheres such as employment, reproductive life, welfare, and what geographer David Harvey refers to as the habits of the heart. This is really critical to understand as when we reduce neoliberalism to economic policies, we ignore the political rationality and the technologies of governance that transcend market spaces as Wendy Brown reminds us. Instead, by framing neoliberalism as a biopolitical mode of governing vis-a-vis -vis anthropologist Ai Huang, we consider the assemblage of market-driven knowledge and techniques concerned with the management of everyday conduct according to principles such as efficiency, flexibility, and competitiveness. To cite an example, self-help leaders or life coaches often construct workers' productivity in terms of personal satisfaction instead of justifiable wage, and conceptualize issues like poverty in terms of personal attributes like laziness or a sheer lack of motivation. Hello, Kim Kardashian. My book is interested in the ways that similar neoliberal ideas of self-transformation appeal to Muslims who are multiply minoritized in Singapore. Theorizing from months of fieldwork, both online and in the classes, the ethnographic data I present in the book gesture to the ways that the teachers and students embraced neoliberal ideologies in their pursuit of self-transformation. Individualizing responsibility in contending with precarity instead of attending to structures of racialized inequities. In this frame, Malays are reminded that they just need to be more productive, more motivated, and less lazy. In the classes, the teachers expressed pride that their students were mostly university students and professional executives invested in self-transformation. This means that they are like the, very much the elites of the community. Here, Islamic self-help would provide us with the tools to achieve success. However, even as I am critical of these modes of pious cultivation, I have to clarify that I'm not invested in secularist and liberal activist depictions of such forms of Islam as yet another form of false consciousness. What I mean by this is the ways that we might be inspired to conclude that Islamic self-help lulls Muslims to ignore or rely on equity. Instead, in analyzing self-help tied to the disciplining of race and religion, my book rejects both the fetishization and the reification of difference and grapples with the promise and the failures of self-help within a context of deep precarity. As the case of Singapore illustrates, minoritized groups are discursively interpolated as subjects constantly in need of self-transformation so as to approximate the ideal citizenship beneficial to a neoliberal multicultural state. How then do we contend with the reality that discourses of self-transformation simultaneously extend the neoliberal gaze of the state while affirming the hopes and desires of minoritized subjects? 
Here, my book argues that we are challenged to sit with the discomfort that discourses of self-transformation both consolidate the state's racializing project while enabling Muslim women to mediate their anxieties, restoring a sense of ventral vagal safety in their bodies. These pursuits of self-becoming, however, enacted exclusionary consequences within the Muslim community. They should therefore provoke us to interrogate not only what it means to survive and thrive under conditions of duress, but also what it means to heal. Here, my book proposes another provocation. If Islamic self-help discourses enable subjects to feel optimistic and hopeful amidst everyday adversity, would this not render futile the state's construction of Malayness as always in need of reconstitution? If, as abolitionist organizer and scholar Mariam Kaba insists, hope is a discipline, what does it mean for Muslim women to draw from Islamic self-help and deliberately cultivate a sense of optimism? While Mariam Kaba's meditations on hope scaffold her activist organizing tied to abolishing the prison industrial complex, they bear resonance in my book, for they compel us to consider hope and aspirational becoming as disciplinary practices that facilitate an otherwise imaginary. Serendipitously, Mariam Kabar herself first encountered this phrase in communication with the Catholic nun. Could we then conceive of the process of cultivating hope through Islamic self-help as constitutive of willful participation in emotional and bodily discipline as part of transforming one's personhood? Inspired by Mariam Kaba's framing of hope as a form of discipline, my book asserts the importance of complicating self-help beyond the neoliberal commodification of optimism. To do so, my book engages with emergent debates in somatic-centered healing proposed in the best-selling book by Bessel van der Kolk, The Body Keeps the Score. This text provides us with the framework to reimagine personal transformation as the cultivation of bodily safety, pleasure, and healing in response to punitive and carceral logics often experienced by minoritized subjects. Within polyvagal theory, our nervous system responds to environmental stresses by activating our sympathetic system, fight or flight, our dorsal vagus system when we shut down or collapse or freeze, and our ventral vagal system when we are moved towards social engagement and safety. Through his work with traumatized persons, Vander Koch details how we all store trauma and how therapy aims to move individuals from dorsal states to ventral vagal by restoring a sense of safety in our bodies when in an activated state. Understanding polyvagal theory has been so central to my own theorizing of the appeal of self-help, Islamic self-help. And this is where my work really departs from present analyses of ethical cultivation. Specifically, the ways that women themselves made sense of the affective senses that they experience while in the classes. The many ethnographic vignettes I share in my book points to the ways in which the teachers' uh, pedagogies mediated women's anxieties as minoritized subjects, instilling within them a ventral vagal sense of forgiveness, peacefulness, optimism, and perseverance. Tellingly, Vendrick Koch himself briefly discusses class and racialized inequities as important sources of trauma in his book, as well as prayer and meditation as critical means of restoring ventral vagal safety. 
Bridging the discussions on abolitionist hope, bodily discipline, and self-healing, the book's experimental coda reflects on the practice of writing a book on self-help within the context of an ongoing global pandemic. As I reflected on anthropologists' critique of politically prescriptive analyses, I began asking myself, what is the responsibility of scholars analyzing their own communities invested in transcending models of self-care toward communal care? My experimental coda argues that we already have models for collectivizing care in Singapore in the form of mutual aid activist organizing that emerged during the pandemic and Muslim self-help teachers who have started to utilize trauma-informed frameworks. So here, for example, you see a preacher whose classes I don't discuss in the book, who, have, um, who has recently started offering therapeutic services through trauma-informed therapy from licensed mental health workers, along with the other classes um, that she offers. Drawing inspiration from this effort, the CODA provides us with the pathways to further imagine the form and alternative model of Islamic self-help centered on collectivizing care could assume. So before I conclude, I just want to say that um, I'm really excited to hear all your talk, uh, to your questions, and that you know these talks typically tend to be faculty centric. And so while I welcome questions from everyone, I also know that there are many students here today or others um, who are not a part of Harvard. Harvard. So in the spirit of collectivizing care tied to knowledge production, I'd really like to encourage um, the students and others to ask questions. Thank you for your attention. Thank you so much, Zad, for this really uh, capacious and ambitious um, undertaking, connecting these very intimate and effective spaces of the self-help class to structures of global capitalism. Um, it's really a remarkable accomplishment. And I just want to congratulate you and hear um, from people in the audience. Um, so please, you can put questions into the chat um, and I will be happy to ask them. Um, normally, I have a question ready to start out, which of course I do, but we already have some wonderful uh, questions in the, in the chat. Um, so I'm going to start with one from Jana Amin. Um, she says, you asked our class on multiple occasions to envision alternative conceptualizations of social media. I'm curious how you would envision an abolitionist social media in service of these young women, their piety, and their desires for ventral vagal safety in the context of Singapore's transnational context of highly racialized state discourse and state surveillance. Where do you locate agency in your abolitionist vision? Thank you so much, um, Jenna, for this brilliant question. I'm not sure if I uh, can address it with the full complexity that it deserves, but I will uh, attempt to uh, address this question. I think the question, you know, in one of our classes, we were like pondering what does an abolitionist vision of and for social media, what would it look like, right? And I think here we have to talk about multiple complexities. One is that the fact that a lot of minoritized subjects, racial and ethnic and gender and sexual minorities have started to reclaim social media to self-represent. And we are at a moment where we have the flourishing of multiple counterpublics. 
right? So we have that. And at the same time, we also have hyper surveillance. We have the creation of algorithms. We have the use of social media to actually um, extend the work of the carceral uh, state, right? And so I'm always thinking of this idea of using the resources of something against itself. And here I'm thinking about social media, right? Like how would you do that? And what does that look like, especially within the context of Singapore? And so I think, and this is why my CODA discusses extensively the work of mutual aid um, organizing in Singapore, because I think sometimes when we discuss these things and we're like thinking about collective care, we're always imagining and we're always making the presumption that these models don't already exist, right? In Singapore within the pandemic, um, a non, an activist organization started organizing mutual aid efforts. And this was really different. They were explicitly, they were explicit about the ways in which they did not want to be associated with charity and with charitable efforts by the state. Instead, they were inside, they were encouraging people. It was a very ad hoc organization mobilizing a mobilization using predominantly social media and other digital technologies to redistribute resources in spaces where the, where the state has failed. Right? So then within the context of my research, I am sort of inspired to ask, what would that look like? Right? And so I think a lot about Muslim women in Singapore who have started to use social media to openly discuss mental health. And not only, for example, from the perspective of like, oh, like um, I have a mental health, I'm struggling with mental health and I need to be more religious, but more of like, what exactly am I feeling? How does Islam offer certain resources for me to navigate mental health, but what else do I need? How do I link mental health and mental health trauma tied to everyday precarity? Women are really doing this, right? And my worry, and I think the, the, the question on, on state surveillance is really key. I am always worried because, you know, social media is one sphere in which the state has really refrained from actively regulating, but we're seeing more and more instances um, of the state actually sort of, how would I say this? Um, charging Singaporeans who have used social media to advance what it perceives to be political causes. So there's always this tension that I think people are grappling with or battling with. And um, I think it's complicated, but I think we're always trying. Um, and, and, and I think that is why I love teaching and writing about social media. What an array of issues you're, you're tackling here. Um, and we have quite a few questions about methods and um, disciplinarity coming into the chat. I'm gonna take a step back first and use the chair's prerogative to ask you maybe a simpler question. Um, in the United States, self-help is often uh, related to the idea of being spiritual, but not religious. Mm. And um, you are using Islamic self-help as the arena of inquiry. And I wonder if you could um, tell us a bit more about what is Islamic about Islamic self-help. Mm. And is there, um, as we see in the United States, a, um, a questioning of institutional structures of Islam in the turn mm -hmm. to spirituality. I was very struck to see 
the slide you showed of the advertisement that called the project Project Spirituality. And uh, Project Spirituality um, doesn't necessarily have to be Islamic. So uh, can you help me connect some of these dots? Yeah, I think that's actually a really excellent question. And it is something that I grapple with extensively in my book. Like what makes this Islamic self-help? And I think that it is very important to realize that the teachers not only, like they weren't interested in sort of, they weren't interested in sort of only um, referencing or using Islamic discourses. So they were not only using the Quran and Hadith, but also self-help rhetoric. So they had to be read together. They had to be contextualized in relation to one another. And it was that sort of cross communication or disconnections that they were making that really fascinated me, right? So for example, they would screen like one of the classes which I uh, discussed in my book began by screening an episode or a clip from um, the movie Eat, Pray, Love. So then the teacher was like, well, you know, this is a scene about like loving yourself because Julia Roberts was writing a breakup letter to her lover. And he's like, now the question that we have to think about is what does loving yourself actually means? But more importantly, what does it mean within the context of Islam? What does it mean to understand that your ultimate love is for God and that all kinds of love, all the other forms of love should, you know, should not supersede that. And so they were making these connections that really fascinated me. So that's one in terms of romantic relationships, but they were also using management literature and things like time organization, um, like flexibility, effectiveness, but not just saying that. So the connection was always that we needed these values and we needed these attributes because this is what Islam um, desires of us. And this is what it means to be, to exist as a Singaporean citizen. So the context of state was always lurking there. It was always like, this is what we have to be as a community. This is what um, it means to survive in Singapore. So there were also a lot of, um, distinctions made between being a Malay in Singapore versus being a Malay in Malaysia and how we're minorities and we're the model minorities. And so we needed to sort of preserve that and, and excavate that and prioritize that. So there's all these tensions um, that I explore in the book tied to Islam and self-help. I think what fascinated me most was the circulation of sort of cultural uh, production from the United States in the classes, in the, forms, in the form of music, like Hollywood videos and posters, and in the form of self-help literature from Deepak Chopra, Stephen Covey, and things like that. It's fascinating. Thank you so much. Um, let's turn to a group of questions about methodology. Um, one uh, is about your multi-sided ethnographic project that brings together the online and the offline. Um, and if you could tell us how you conceptualize that relationship. Um, and another is about the limitations of disciplinarity and even interdisciplinarity that your work flags, um, which that really struck me during your presentation, you uh, have such a capacious uh, net uh, in which you're, you're bringing theories into your work. Um, and I'd love to hear you talk about both those things. Thank you for these questions. They're very intentional questions to me. And I'm gonna answer the second question first, um, only because I think my response might be slightly more brief. 
Um, I think interdisciplinarity is, is very important to me because my training was in political science and then sociology and then anthropology. And here I really want to credit my advisor, my dissertation advisor who's here today, Robert Lonnie, because he really did not force me or coerce me even gently to write a certain type of dissertation. I was always able to explore whatever I wanted to explore. I was always that flexibility. I mean, I think that we take for granted sort of that to be able to work with someone who truly encourages you to pursue the questions that you were interested in pursuing. And so that actually, I think, compelled me to ask a lot of questions that I slowly started asking um, while I was writing the dissertation. I actually, I think that I did not answer a lot of these questions in my dissertation. But then after my dissertation, you know, I started engaging with other scholars. I started engaging with other thinkers. And then I started asking myself, like, what are the limits of sticking to disciplinary boundaries, right? What are some of the questions that maybe anthropology forecloses that other disciplines are inviting us to, to, to interrogate? And for me, I think that, you know, I'm so grateful, like I said, for my time at Harvard, because I have had the space to really, really think through some of these questions. But I'm also deeply grateful because I, uh, for my, um, the time that I've had at Pratt, because I think there is this, there's something really special about working with people who are very inspired by visuality. It really forces you to think beyond the text and to think about the limitations of the text and to think about visuality, even as I analyzed social media data. And I think this is a good segue to discuss the second question. My work really, um, um, you know, I tried to embody multi-sided ethnography. So I not only attended classes, I spent a lot of time with my interlocutors outside of class. Um, my colleagues are actually workshopping my chapter this week, and the chapter that they're about to read actually opens with um, an ethnographic vignette where I describe my time doing yoga with the women I attended classes with at a public park, and how I began to feel very nervous because I was like, I'm like um, doing this yoga in a hijab in um, a field, and I started feeling like my body was very gazed upon. So, it, and, and I started thinking about what it means to display my body in a certain way. What it, I started thinking about embodiment very deeply, right? And a lot of these interactions that I had with my interlocutors beyond the classroom actually enabled me to get a deeper sense of how they were making sense of the knowledge that, that they received in the classes. And to my surprise and fascination, it wasn't like they did not remember or recite or reference specific Quranic verses or hadith, but it was always the way the lessons made them feel. Yeah. What did I feel after writing that letter? What did I feel when Ustaz showed the clip and made the, the connections with like love? And so it enabled me to sort of theorize uh, ped pedagogy and Islamic cultivation as not linear. It's very complicated, but Islam was always there. Islam foregrounded everything they did. But whether or not they were citing Islam in the ways that we would assume people in an Islamic educational class would cite is a completely different story. So that's in terms of multi-sided ethnography. But social media is also a central part of my work. And a large part of this is because I remember moments. This really struck me when I first started doing um, attending um, the classes. The teachers would pause the class 
and say things like, okay, like um, if there's a beautiful slide on the projector screen, the teachers will literally pause the class and say, you know, you're free to take a picture. Don't forget to tag me on, on social media, right? And the students would post and they would check in at the location. So I started, I was very curious about the optics of visibility and presence. What does it mean to index that you attended an event? What does it mean to then post some of these things and engage in discussions or share things from the class? I also began realizing that, um, so I started realizing a lot of things like techniques of enframement, how women were presenting themselves on social media, the captions they use, their hashtag sociality, what kind of um, hashtags they use to index sort of uh, solidarity with other users and what kind of discussions they were having. And I realized that what was so fascinating was that social media, so in the classes, there was not a lot of like, there were not many instances where the students challenged the instructors, right? Because I think there's a lot like a model of like deference um, within, not only within the Singapore con uh, context, but also within an, you know, an Islamic educational context that you really respect the teacher's authority and the teacher's knowledge. And so the students were a bit sort of, um, reserved if they had questions or contentions, but social media was where you started to see a lot of the contestations emerging, where students might be like, hmm, the teacher said something in class. Um, I kind of have questions tied to that, or like I'm a bit uncomfortable, but it was always phrased, it was always framed using very specific um, uh, I'm losing my phrase and my colleague Joyce probably gonna kill me for this, but using specific speech, I'm losing the word here, right? The speech conventions to index that they're doing this with um, great care and, and, and with proper etiquette and not just uh, to like disobey the teacher, but embedded within that is always, hmm, I'm kind of disagreeing with this. And so I look at this, this forms of contestation, um, both online and offline. Thank you. Um... We, I'm going to uh, give us one more question that will um, perhaps push us a little bit over the hour of one o'clock. So if people have to leave, we understand, but there's a lot of questions left. So, um, I and I see two that I recognize as uh, students. So I'm gonna combine these two questions. Um, the first from a student in your class who says in class, we have spoken at length about legibility and authentic self-expression that is often directly at odds with surveillance. Mm. Throughout your time conducting ethnographic research, how did you see the goals of self-help intersect with this paradigm? Mm. And then the second question is also about um, how self-help is constituted. The student asks, how do neoliberal self-making norms factor into online legibility? for the communities you study. Mm. Is calling a project self-help a tactical decision rather than an acknowledgement of neoliberal syncretization with Singaporean Islam? So thank you for these questions. These are really, I think, complex questions and I'm gonna try my best to um, address them. I'm also really excited to hear questions about legibility because we had like some intense discussions in the classroom about leg legibility. And so, you know, I think a lot about what these practices signify, right? Are these attempts at sort of 
presenting themselves as more legible within the Singapore context. And if and one could also argue in, in so many ways that the appeal to moderate Islam, the appeal to present Islam as synchronized with Singaporean culture are attempts at being legible. And I think we see that not only with minoritized groups in Singapore, but also globally. A lot of our um, representations of self or representations of selves are, are sort of tied to the desire to be legible, to be understood, to be read, right? And so there is a complication here because my instinct is to always like sort of be skeptical of that, right? Like why do we desire legibility so much? By whom and for whom? What purpose does it serve? But I also wanna hold the tension, right? Because it is really, really hard to exist as a multiply minoritized subject in Singapore. It's really hard to exist in a condition whereby you're always being surveilled, whereby you're constantly told that you're not good enough, that uh, your community is poor and lazy and unhealthy and blah, blah, blah. And so I think that this is why understanding the structures, the power structures that not only um, shape sociality, but also structure norms, right? This question partly is also about norms. So what I'm interested in understanding, I guess, is what are the power relations that facilitate or inspire people, in this case, Muslim women, to habituate certain norms, in this case, Islamic self-help? How does legibility configure? And how do we, how can we be critical of both while also acknowledging that, that people are just trying to survive? People are just trying to heal within a context of deep trauma. And I have deep compassion for that. But that is something that I have had to cultivate myself because I began this project with a lot of skepticism, right? And, and in the process, I've really, really had to ask myself very hard questions about what it means to really, really understand why these classes were so um, attractive to Muslim women beyond their desires to be read as legible within the context of mainstream Singapore society. So I think that that's like a brief response. And in terms of the, the part about, um, as it, is it a tactical decision? I think of it as a tactical gloss. And I think about the ways in which the framing of Islamic self-help is not only a form of uh, foreclosing, but also an invitation for us to ask the question, where is Islam? What is being helped? Where is the self? And so my work attempts to sort of make these connections within a context of governmentality. Mm, so much to think about. I, I am gonna take a couple of more questions because there's still a lot of people online. A few are leaving and they all say they can't wait for the book, um, which I, I heartily concur with. But let me um, bring just at least a couple more questions to the table. One um, asks about the risks that people experience, that the women you study experience um, because of being online. Mm. And um, you know, we've seen that in our own program and as we have, um, created the opportunity for global engagement through putting these lectures online, uh, we've seen that in our own community as well. So uh, the, the questioner wants you to, to comment on how the healing potential relates to the risks that uh, come about. 
And this is a very hard question. And honestly, we were just talking about this right before this talk. Um, like I find myself even catching myself, right? When I talk about Singapore, when I'm explaining myself in the Q&A, because every single word in my presentation, I thought through, especially the parts on Singapore. So now when I have to talk about Singapore's racialization, I'm catching myself and I have to really think multiple times in my head before I say anything because, you know, scholars are under direct threat of persecution, right? Mm -hmm. For um, presenting work that is critical of the state, for um, sort of presenting work that incites racial um, and religious disharmony in the state. So there's a lot of that. So I think there's always that tension whereby from not only from scholars, but also people. Mm -hmm. Posting and commenting and, and um, discussing issues tied to racialization. And so people tend to skirt around these issues, right? Unless, we're, unless we do have like sites like Mothership, whereby people are just like displaying all kinds of xenophobia, all kinds like they're just, and that site somehow, it's not, a lot of people get away with it because the state has like sort of dismissed it as just like a tabloidy site, like whatever, and nobody takes the critique seriously. But at the same time, others who like express criticism or critique that's thoughtful and nuanced, I think always labor and think deeply about like what kind of, what are the implications of doing this? And so there's always this tension whereby social media has afforded so many Muslim women spaces. And I discussed this in one of my articles to actually actively discuss mental health um, in, in ways that I've never seen in my own community. They're actually writing about depression, about anxiety, about being Muslim and Malay in Singapore and their responsibilities. But that also comes with a lot of surveillance, right? And a lot of surveillance within the community and external to the community. Surveillance by state apparatuses and surveillance from community leaders mm -hmm. who have basically reached out to some of these groups or organizations and, you know, and have encouraged them to like produce less work, to do less online um, discussions and things like that. So there's always that and that is always lurking, right? And I don't know, I mean, what do we do with that? We, we, I guess we're all just trying to navigate it in one way or, or another. Mm. Thank you. Um, let me ask a question about uh, the mitigating trauma caused by marginalization. And there's a question about um, how should we moderate diversity within communities that may have different or even contrasting ideas of what mitigation of trauma looks like? Say, yeah. for instance, generational differences, mm -hmm. and she references your comment about your mom. And my mom was definitely traumatized by that talk that I brought her to. Um, no, I think this is such a great question, right? I don't think that um, we can adopt a homogenized or general approach when contending with trauma, because trauma is something that is so specific and trauma resides in our bodies in ways that we uh, do not anticipate. Right. And so the approach has to be deeply individual. And that's why I think it actually resonates deeply with self-help. The question that I want to ask then is that how do we move beyond self-help, right? Because self-help helps. It's very important in terms of restoring a sense of safety in the body, in terms of mediating anxiety, right? But it's not addressing the root cause of the anxiety. And this is where we can start thinking structurally. 
right? Yes, there are certain traumas. Traumas are different in their specificity, but they're always tied in a lot of ways to an abuse of power, the use of power, the circulation of power, and a kind of dispossession in some ways, right? How, what kind of tools do we use to address that? How do we address the inequities that make traumas specific? And I think that this is where having trauma-informed perspectives is really key to understanding self-help, right? And this is why I think mutual aid organizing, the kind that I've seen in Singapore emerge from some of my friends who are organizers, it has really humbled me. What does it mean to do that kind of anarchist inflected organizing in Singapore within a context of deep state surveillance? Because they're asking the same questions. How do we breach intergenerational trauma? Intergenerational poverty is intergenerational trauma. What are the sources that we can rely on to sort of mitigate that? So a lot of their work is about the redistribution of resources because they understand that some form that a lot of the forms of trauma that we have are tied to certain lack. Right? How do we address that while also recognizing that trauma is specific? So I think it requires a, a complex approach, this cognizance of the specificity of trauma, but also the ways that trauma is also structural. Thank you, that's so helpful, Zad. I really appreciate it. Um, uh, lots of thanks coming in the chat. I think I uh, will close with a comment from um, one of our alums, Celine Ibrahim. Um, she says, thank you so much for a rich talk. As someone who frequently offers Islamic themed lectures and workshops in the US context as a female chaplain scholar and who navigates therein media and capital um, in the form of honoraria, et cetera. This lecture has been particularly rich, a particularly rich exercise in introspection. And she asks, I wonder if you have seen certain parallels in the US Muslim context. Celine, I mean, this is a great way to sort of close the discussion. Um, thank you for, first of all, for the work that you do. I think it's deeply meaningful work that like I'm, my students, I like, you know, have like really appreciated the work happening in their own institutions. So I'm thankful for that. And I think the question is brilliant, right? Because there's so many parallels. In, in, um, in fact, a lot of the preachers in the United States, like Suhaib Webb, um, Khalid Latif, they're always coming to Singapore to give talks at the spaces that I study. So there are lots of circulations, I think, um, of knowledge production and large part is because the context of Muslim minoritization is, there are parallels, right? We're both Muslim minorities um, within the context of two very powerful nation states, right? Um, and I think it's fascinating that on the one hand, we have the circulating of knowledge between the US and uh, Singapore, but we also have, I think, the emergence of sort of groups that are critiquing um, uh, religion and ethics, right? Like Believers Bailout, which is um, a black Muslim organization committed to ending cash bail in, in, uh, in the United States and are asking for zakat donations in the month of Ramadan to um, support um, Muslims who are incarcerated, right? So I'm always battling with these tensions. Like, why is it that one form of American um, Islamness, if we could say that, circulates to Singapore and not the others? They're both concerned with ethics and the self, right? But they're circulating in different ways. And I think a large uh, part of the risk, uh, a large 
part of it has got to do with the ways that politics is regulated in Singapore, the questions that we're allowed to ask, but it also is tied to how anti-Blackness circulates globally. So I think I'll end my lecture with that. Zat, thank you so much. I, I see applause visually uh, going around the room um, and uh, on here we are online so I can talk over the applause. Um, just to say, you know, um, you've given us so much today and I feel, you know, kind of like Star Trek, like you've taken us where no one has gone before. And um, uh, you're really opening doors here, bringing things together because of your extraordinary interdisciplinary reach that uh, I don't think we're gonna be able to go back into our little disciplinary boxes after this kind of conversation that engages individual experience, our bodies. You know, everyone talks about embodiment, but I think you gave us a real sense of uh, how to witness and participate in embodied pedagogy. Um, so we're extremely grateful and I'm very grateful to our audience today. Uh, they really responded with such appreciation um, and engagement. It, that is what makes this worth work so worthwhile. I know how hard you're working, Zat, and I know uh, how infrequently your work sees the light of day. We, we look forward to the book coming out when many, many more people will um, get to bring, get to engage this work. But meanwhile, a big uh, thank you to the audience a lot with huge appreciation for the work that you're doing. Thank you so much. Thank you. Sponsor, Women's Studies and Religion Program. Copyright 2022, the President and Fellows of Harvard College.